It was during that time that Amblin greenlit Jurassic Park. I had the opportunity to work with Rand Globe, Steven Spielberg, and Winston on putting together a presentation take out to the market on this very ambitious dinosaur movie. Why are Nike's Chunky Dunky sneakers selling for $6,000 on eBay? How did Mickey Mouse find his way onto a face mask? Exactly how did all that Stranger Things gear land into my shopping cart? We explore what makes you click buy on the products that stand out above the rest, thanks to a little thing called brand licensing. Welcome to The Licensing Mixtape, a podcast by License Global. Welcome to The Licensing Mixtape. My name is Stephen Extract. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Sid Kaufman, an agent with United Talent Agency. Sid, welcome. Good morning, Stephen. So what excites me about the podcast is that I get to have people that I've known for a long time come on as my guests and really talk about the licensing industry. For our listeners out there, you know, our listeners are, are really, I think, interested in learning about kind of the early days of licensing and the history of the business. And to me, no one really represents it as well as you, Sid. And that's not to say that you're old because you are certainly not, but you've been in the business as long as I have and longer. Let's get started by talking about like how you got your start in, in the business. Well, it definitely was not a straight line. I studied to be a physical therapist and went to graduate school at the University of Maryland, Baltimore campus. And in the midst of my graduate program in physical therapy, I realized that this just wasn't right for me. And uh, I wound up going into a family business called Deca Plastics. It was a business that my dad and two uncles started making injection molded licensed plastic housewares. So I went from physical therapy school in 1981 into DECA Plastics and started as a regional sales executive and then started to manage a few of their properties, which at the time consisted of things like Smurfs, Strawberry Shortcake, Pac-Man, and Star Wars. So here you are, you find yourself in a family business. You're on the East Coast, I assume. So how did you transition to moving out to LA and and then moving away from the family business and into, you know, working for others? It, it's an interesting story because um, Deca Plastics was a leader in the category and um, they had just acquired ET. And um, at the time, it was a very, very hot project. Um, and we had orders that far exceeded our capability to produce them. So we wound up increasing our capacity in manufacturing. And by the time the manufacturing capacity was increased, kind of some of the heat on the licensing industry kind of backed off. So we were left in a situation with expanded capacity and declining sales. And it put the company in distress. We wound up selling the company uh, and had to find a job and went to work for a company called MZ Burger, a guy named Bernie Mermelstein, who was in the licensed watch and clock business and worked for Bernie in Long Island City for a couple of years. So Sid, tell us, how did you make the move from moving from East Coast to West Coast? I got a call from Leisure Concepts, Steve and Stan Weston at the time, and um, they had a licensing agency that was 
working with Laura Martella Pictures, they asked me to come out and consider an opportunity where they were representing Laura Martella Pictures for a new primetime sitcom called ALF. So that was approximately 1986. And uh, in 1987, I was in a chair at Laura Martella Pictures launching the merchandising program for ALF. And, and just tell people what ALF was, because uh, I think a lot of our younger younger listeners may not know, but, but ALF was basically a, a puppet, right? It was a, a right. puppet comedy. Is that right? Uh-huh. It was a puppet comedy from a guy named Paul Fusco, who was a former teacher in Connecticut, and Tom Patchett, uh, an executive producer here in Hollywood. It was a primetime series that uh, became enormously successful, and uh, we wound up deploying a full global licensing program from there. And, and, and what, what were some of the interesting products that you put out for ALF? Gosh, we put out everything from uh, toys to toothbrushes. You know, that was the golden days when you could sell 20 or 30 categories into retail in one territory. And uh, ALF just took off as a gigantic opportunity. And then from there, it really went global. And it was the first opportunity that I had to see the strategy of taking a global license and localizing it. I mean, ALF in Germany casted the voice of a very famous German comedian at the time, And it just took the sales and skyrocketed them in Germany. I think in Germany alone, ALF generated more royalties than in the rest of the world. Wow. Amazing. So we're going back to the 80s, right? Uh, Were there, was there a licensing infrastructure globally? Um, Because the business was relatively new. I mean, it had been around in the U.S. for a while, right? Particularly on the entertainment side. Disney had been doing it since like the 1930s. It probably wasn't nearly the size and scope of what it is today, right? So like there was probably just certain agents in each marketplace. Is that how it worked in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, there were work, there were agents, local agents in each marketplace. It was kind of the, the growth days of the licensing industry. There were a lot of studios that were putting a lot of energy into the space. So we did have local agents in each territory, and uh, the industry itself was starting to mature. We had, at the time, what was called LIMA, the Licensing Industry Merchandisers Association. LIMA was just starting to get a foothold in the global licensing space. So, so ALF was a, a very successful program, probably the first large-scale global program that I had the opportunity to work on, I'm working very closely with the producers and the creators. Also, you know, for the first time, really talking to the retailers, talking to them about how to build uh, cross-promotion in-store programs. So let's talk a little bit about retail back then, because uh, it, it was a lot different than it is today, right? I mean, we're now sort of witnessing during this pandemic, some of the greatest of the brick and mortar retailers that are sort of falling by the wayside. But going back to 1986, right, there were so many, I mean, it was all brick and mortar. There was no such such thing as a, a buying through e-commerce. Everything was uh, brick and mortar. And there was so many independent retailers, right? I mean, just right. so, so many, and a lot of them were regional. So it was probably a lot easier to sell in product than it is today, right? 
Well, there were a lot of licenses vying for shelf space. So there really wasn't as much shelf space as there were opportunities in the marketplace. I would say the bellwether in those days in terms of retail was Toys R Us. So there was a lot of focus on the toy category and Toys R Us was pretty much driving the business for us. Uh, And what about the large department stores like the Federated and, and were, were they are were they getting into licensing? Um, because I know certainly uh, there was an expansion into uh, for entertainment properties for kids apparel and accessories. But um, the brand part of licensing hadn't really kind of taken off yet, uh, except maybe in the fashion part of the business. Right. Yeah, no, I would say that it was more of a mass market opportunity at those times. I mean, Kmart was still viable. So that was a big retailer. Walmart was emerging. And and then there was still these general merchandise supermarket opportunities out there that were carrying a lot of licensed goods. So I would say there were more places to sell, but I would say there were more properties at that time selling in. So it was very competitive. After Alf's huge success, uh, what was your next sort of uh, chapter? Well, the the next chapter was interesting because... Laura Martella Pictures was acquired by Warner Brothers. So obviously, all of the consumer products were pulled up into the licensing program at Warner Brothers. And at that time, um, I received a call from Brad Globe at Amblin, interested in me considering an opportunity to work with Universal Studios Merchandising, Amblin's consumer products company, on some of their projects that they had a very ambitious slate that included a dinosaur picture that had yet to been publicized yet called Jurassic Park. So I went over and met with the folks at Universal. The guy running it at the time was a guy named Victor Temkin. And Universal was probably um, the least of the, the major studios involved in licensing. I saw an opportunity there and joined Universal in approximately uh, 1988 and started working on their portfolio of properties that included things like Miami Vice, classics like Woody Woodpecker, their Universal Monsters franchise. And it was during that time that Amblin greenlit Jurassic Park. And I had the opportunity to work with Brad Globe, Steven Spielberg, Stan Winston on uh, putting together a presentation to take out to the marketplace on this very, very ambitious dinosaur movie. And really, uh, from a historic perspective, that it was huge, right? I mean, Jurassic Park was was just a huge, huge hit, right? From from the get go. But like many projects at that time, it was shrouded in secrecy. Right. So, um, you know, we were out basically selling it without anything to sell. But when we were really uh, aggressively looking to wrap up the toy license, we had an opportunity to go to Stan Winston's studio. And Stan was doing the special effects on Jurassic Park, creating the dinosaurs. And we brought a couple of the toy companies over to Stan Winston's to take a look at what was going on. And it was a mind blower. I mean, what they were doing, what they were building was a toy maker's dream. And so at the time we wound up licensing the rights to uh, Hasbro and um, Kenner. Kenner was still in business at that time. And a guy named Bruce Stein was running the business. And we sat down with Kenner and, and Hasbro, and we were able to do a few things at that stage that made this 
a really proprietary property. In fact, we branded the dinosaurs so that in the movies, you, you could see that the dinosaurs have a JP brand on it. And that was a suggestion that came from the toy company so that we can own these dinosaurs, that they weren't just generic dinosaurs, that they were proprietary to Jurassic Park. And that was a big move. And yeah, Jurassic Park was huge. Wow. That, that's really interesting. I didn't know about the branding of the dinosaurs. That's because I, I, I often wondered, like, how do you protect that? Right. How do you protect mm -hmm. that? That. But that's that's incredible. You know, you mentioned um, a number, of, uh, a few names that are just that are legends in the business. But, you know, the younger folks uh, listening to the podcast may not know who Stan Winston was. Stan Winston was. Um, had his own uh, studio and did special effects for all the big movies, right? And going back probably from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, he was the guy you went to when it came to special effects and creating monsters, et cetera, right? Uh, creatures. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and you also mentioned Brad Globe, who who's uh, retired, but uh, Brad was uh, was Steven Spielberg's sort of right hand guy, right, for many many years, and uh, and then went on to uh, run DreamWorks. Uh, yeah, I mean, through those days, there were a lot of iconic people in the business that I had a chance to work with. I think my first meeting in the business was a guy named Seth Siegel. My second meeting in the business was a guy, a woman named Joy Tashian. My first problem in the business uh, was resolved with uh, Isabel Miller. Uh, I became friends with a number of people in the business, including people like Woody Brown and Gary Kaplan and Sam Haddad. And I had the opportunity to work with some of the first people to lead the industry like a Murray Altschuler or a Bobby Lauberbaum. Yeah, I mean, these are all legends that you're bringing up that that were really all folks that were really well established. I mean, I, I'm sort of a latecomer to the business, having joined in ninety late ninety seven, early ninety eight. But the, all, all everyone you mentioned were like those were icons. Those were like people that that I was like, you know, starting a, a magazine, starting licensed magazine. Um, I had to get a meetings with those folks and go in and meet with them. And it was very intimidating because they were all super, super successful. And, you know, it was people like you said that that really helped me out because you would at trade shows, you would like introduce me to these people. And, and i started to realize, you know what, even though, you know, people speak of them as, as legends and icons, they're just normal, regular people. Uh, which is one of the things I really sort of embraced about the licensing business was that it's really a people business and it's really about deal making and and everyone would tell you the same thing, which is you're only as good as your last deal. Right. Um, which which is something I really kind of loved and, and admired about the business right away was that it's all about just deal making and pretty much everyone was really down to earth and willing to to hear what you had to say. I mean, I think there's like a magic, uh, certainly going back to those days, but still, I still feel it. There's a magic about licensing because it's like, you know, you never know what the next big hit's going right. to be. And that's that was sort of what was wonderful about always going to licensing expo. 
um, even back, I'm sure back in the days when you went to the, when it was at the Hilton, but certainly uh, my first licensing expo was in 97. It was the first year it was at um, Jacob Javits Center, and that was the second iteration of Jurassic Park. And I remember I was working for The Hollywood Reporter at the time, and they said, hey, this show just moved over from the Hilton to, uh, to the Javits. It's called Licensing Show. You know anything about it? I was like, no. They're like, Go over to Javis and check it out. See, see, you know, get it's getting some, it's getting some buzz. So I walk in there, and I mean, I remember Universal had like the largest booth I had ever seen at any trade show ever for Jurassic Park, and I walk in, and it was just such an experience. It was so experiential, and I fell in love with the business. And and um, right then and there, I thought, you know what, there's a huge opportunity here because I had no, you know, coming from mainstream working at the Hollywood Reporter and sort of knowing the film and TV and cable business, but I didn't really understand the whole consumer products part of it. And it was like, wow, there's an opportunity here for uh, information product. And, uh, and certainly, uh, yeah, it, there was, and, and it was, it's, it's been a great ride. That's the transition period in the late 90s, early 2000, when I think the business went from like a hype business where, you know, where you would get these big talkers involved in your licensing program and they would kind of talk it up and you could build up a presence using, you know, other people to where today is all about performance. Um, and it's, it's less about hype. It's less about the air pitch. And it's more about being able to demonstrate performance. So I think to a certain extent, the network of people that drove the business in 90s became less important in terms of driving licensing programs. And it really transitioned into data and performance. Absolutely. And and it's interesting because your career has really transformed with that um, over the years. It's interesting because every time I run into you, you're working on another hot property. It's like, wow, you know, you went and you went from you went from the film business or, or what you, you started, I guess, in in working in TV with Alf. Then you went to film. Then you went back to then you went to kids animation, which was super, super hot. Right. In the late 90s and early 2000s when you were at Nelvana. Uh, and they were certainly, uh, you know, one of the leaders when it came to kids animation. Uh, and then um you, you've transitioned, you, you've worked in the music, in the rock and roll business, rock and roll merchandising business. Um, now you're an agent. So, so let's talk a little bit about your step along the way. And like, what would you tell people who are starting out in the business? And, and you know, what would be sort of your, uh, your wisdom, if you will? Yeah, I think the wisdom is to be aware of the changing climates. And things are changing so fast right now, but they've always been changing. I think it's important to have a business plan as opposed to an emotional plan. How do you build something from scratch? What do you use to generate initial performance that then you can use to go out and sell against? And back in the day, it was initial performance was getting it to retail. Today, initial performance kind of has no filter. Initial performance can be YouTube views. Initial performance can be product sell-through on e-commerce. Initial performance could be some products that are selling on Amazon. There's a lot of ways to reach the consumer 
that just weren't available previously. And I would say today, the retailer is much more pragmatic about what kind of properties they're taking on. The retailer needs product to perform. That's the partnership is that we, if we can deliver a brand that has licensees that can perform, the retailers want that. But historically, it was more about hyping and pumping up a brand and creating a groundswell. Today, it's all about performance and it's unequivocal. Retailers know at the end of the day how much they sold, how much they sold against your competition, how much they sold against last year's numbers, so it's, it's very data-driven. So you really can't hype like you used to be able to hype something. You got to be able to perform. And, and I really, I love that concept of the democratization of licensing because, as you said, you know, a new property can come out of anywhere. And really, because of YouTube, because of the internet, because of social media, it can really, like, it doesn't need to depend on the few, what used to be just film or television or, or music, right? So, so that, that, that alone just has changed the business considerably right but don't you find that it's still difficult because retailers don't always know what's hot right because they they may they're not necessarily young people they don't they don't understand youtube they don't understand tiktok so how do you communicate this to them because it's one thing i find really frustrating is I see all of these digitally native properties that are coming up really quickly and embraced by young people. And yet you don't see the licensing part of it happening at retail yet. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because kind of the two hottest things that I'm working on right now are YouTube and TikTok properties. And I've been out to retail with both of them and I've talked to the buyers. And the way you connect is, look, the, the buyer may be a little bit mature, but the analyst, you know, is a much younger person who may have young kids who grew up in the social media and digital era. So they're a little bit more open. So what we've done is we've really gone out and educated the, the retail buyers. Oftentimes we'll go to retail meetings with the head of our digital departments that run things like TikTok, YouTube, and, and other digital media clients. And they'll explain to the buyers really how big it is, how it compares to traditional media, and how, how much growth there is. And remember, with digital media, we're able to zero in on the consumer, obviously not kids, but the parents and where they live and how passionate they are and how many subscribers there are. So you're able to create this scenario for the buyers that's unequivocal, that is undeniable. And then as they go about their day in their lives and talk about things, they're able to validate it. Hey, you know, this kid show on YouTube, I don't have a two-year-old, but every person I've asked with a two-year-old knows all about it. You know, this is the biggest thing I've never heard of. So if you think about that on YouTube, on podcasts, on Twitch, on Instagram, you know, these these are the digital talent of today that are taking over the business and um, usurping traditional media. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you do you do you find 
do you think it's possible that that the licensing portion of the business could become oversaturated because there's so many um there's so much of this going on and there's so much product being put out there uh as brand extensions or is this just sort of the way of how uh, of how young people embrace uh, em embrace their whatever their their fandom is. Is it? Do you see more licensed product as a result? Certainly, my sense is that branding has become so much more uh, part of our culture in the last 25 years than it ever was before. Yeah, I think you see more because they're coming from more places. I think it's always competitive in the marketplace. I think there's only a limited number of slots. So everybody is vying for those slots. Nobody, no retailer is going to uh, take a full licensing program without testing it. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in the trenches to get to a place where you can build a licensing program at retail. You know, like I had said before, a lot of brands today have their own e-commerce sites. So they're able to talk to the customer directly and get immediate information. So we take that information and that passion and bring it to retail and explain to them how it could work for them. We also have to still talk in traditional terms about what's the future uh, content plan. Because when we talk to a retailer today, we're really talking about a year in advance before they buy. So these are still long-term slogs that we've got to be able to strategize and plan for and not get ahead of ourselves, not put too much pressure on the merch. That's something that I, I live by today that you really want to measure the amount of product you have in the market until you know how the consumer is going to respond. Because the worst thing you could do is push too much product in the marketplace and put too much pressure on the merch. The best thing you could do is to build a, a history of sell-through and leave that customer a little bit wanting of more and then backfill those products the kind of ancillary categories as you go. I think that's still very much a traditional strategy in the licensing space is, is not flooding the marketplace and, and, and being patient to make sure that you understand what's going on because the easiest way to still kill a licensing program is to overship an ancillary product category that isn't going to sell through. The best way to build a licensing program is to show sell through and velocity. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I mean, the history of the licensing business, at least as long as I've been in it, is just littered with with the roadkill of oversaturation, you know, and and properties that licensees were sold on and believed that you know the consumers, the demand would be there, and certainly they were huge. They were certainly huge brands or huge properties, but sometimes the product categories just didn't translate to consumer sales, right? And and typically having to write those big upfront checks to the licensors for millions of dollars can put a licensee out of business. So I, I think that's really good wisdom. One of the things I want to talk about is retail. You, you mentioned retail. Um, certainly the business lives or dies at retail, but retail's changing. We are certainly moving from what was traditionally a majority of brick and mortar retail to what's becoming, due to the pandemic, uh, more, a majority of e-commerce sales. 
But um, one thing you mentioned was that uh, a lot of brands have their own e-commerce. And is that going to, does that create problems with retailers, um, with big retailers who go, you know what, guys, you can't sell against us um, or, or we see you as trying to compete against us. You want to sell through our store, but you're also selling through your own store. So how is that sort of being managed in the business? I mean, selling through your own store is a great indicator of, what works, right? And then you could take that data to the retailer. And if you're your own retailer and you have your own e-commerce, it's not unlike anything else out in the world today. Maybe you just want to have a certain style on your e-commerce site and have a different style when you're out selling to the big box guys. I would say that the big box guys today are more coordinated than ever on their e-commerce strategy. Historically, we've seen the e-commerce division of the big box retailer very separate from the retail division or the big, you know, the the um, big box. Today, I see those closer than they've ever been. So when you have a product online at a big box retailer, they're more uh, aware of its performance and able to translate it into in-store sales than ever. Whereas, you know, historically, we would test a product a t-shirt on a rounder. A retailer would bring in a t-shirt, put it on a rounder with 20 other tests and in a couple of markets and whatever sold, you know, that was the winner. Today's world, you could do that on e-commerce. You could do it faster. You could do it more efficiently. And many of the licensees that we work with are selling to both the e-commerce division and the big box division of many of the big retailers. Let's just change tax for a minute because I want to sort of just put a little levity into this because we're getting pretty serious, which is great. It's really it's really good information. But tell me, uh, tell me what was some of the funniest, strangest or unusual properties, characters or people you've come across in your years in the biz? So um, I am an expert in working for challenging people. (laughs) Um, I have experienced firsthand some of the biggest personalities in the business. You know, let's go back to Leisure Concepts. I had an opportunity at Leisure Concepts to work with Al Khan. um, And Al, from his Coleco days, certainly uh, a maverick in the business. I also worked for Isaac Larian at MGA. Isaac was a unique individual, but the one thing that I have to say about Isaac that is, you know, a great personality uh, trait is that Isaac always pushed his people for innovation. And I think that's what kept that company very competitive is his push for innovation. At uh, Universal, um, I worked for Sid Scheinberg and Lou Wasserman. Uh, That was an experience. Two legends in the business, Mm -hmm. big, huge characters. And then, you know, look, I've really enjoy the people I've met in this career. And many of them today, I call my friends. So I would say that the people part of this business is still strong and attractive to me. But I also think that being at a company like UTA today, where I have the opportunity to be exposed to the most contemporary platform, the emerging talent, all of this new business, new media, that's really exciting. Uh, and, and to me, that is the biggest change is that, you know, we've gone from these big personalities 
to these big new media platforms driving the business. And uh, in that change, there's a whole new generation of young people who grew up on these on this media that now I have the opportunity to learn from. You know, I, I just find that really exciting. I like the change. I like all this disruption. I think it's exciting uh, for a business that could seem pretty basic. It's now very complicated. It's got new opportunities. It's got new people. It's got new technology, emerging platforms. I think that's that's really exciting. So, I mean, I've I've enjoyed the people. I, I really cherish the people I've met in this business. I met some huge characters, but now it's about technology, new platforms, emerging platforms, emerging talent. It's just very stimulating. So true, so true, absolutely. So that's a good good um, note to end on. Um, I just, I wanna thank you so much for being our guest today and hopefully we can have you back again. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate you thinking of me and uh, I look forward to working with you for many years to come. Me too, Sid, thank you so much. As always, the License Global team wants to hear from you. Get in touch with us at news at licenseglobal.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn or Facebook to leave your thoughts or just to stay in the loop with the latest news. If you've enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow us on whichever platform you found us on and we'll be hard at work bringing you more episodes of the licensing mixtape. Until then, we'll catch you next time.